Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I am one of the shepherds here at EV Free. And uh, I want to begin this morning with a story that uh, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of rock climbing and mountaineering. And um, one of the things that was a normal thing that you would read if you're a mountaineer or a rock climber is that you would read Accidents in North American Mountaineering. It's a fascinating book, and it's put out every single year. They literally go out and collect the stories of everybody who has fallen, who has um, had some type of accident, and it could end up in broken bones, it could end up in just getting lost, it could end up in hypothermia, it could end up in death. And every year they collect these stories from park rangers, from forest service from rescue uh, teams and just about anybody from the people themselves who would write those reports. But the idea was that everybody's going out into the mountains and as they're out there, certain things happen. And if you can read and learn from somebody else's mistake, then you won't necessarily have to make that same mistake. And so what we would do is before we would, during the winter time, while you were getting your gear ready and planning your next trip, you would literally read the previous year's accident and how people died the way they died. And it's the type of thing where typically one of the most common ones is you'll have somebody who's rappelling down a a long, large cliff, uh, very high rocks, jagged rocks at the bottom. And if they're coming down, they may want to stop at a ledge. But if they forget or if they slip and they miss the ledge, then they will rappel all the way down to the end of the rope. So the idea would be when you get to the end of the rope, you don't actually want to go off the rope. So you might want to write that down if you ever want to go rappelling. Don't rappel off the rope. You use a a rappel device, a thing that basically brings friction to the rope so that the rope doesn't just slip through your hands. You can apply a little pressure and you can ease yourself down. But too often what happens is, is somebody will be going along and before they'll know it, they're having fun, they're going faster and they will rappel right off the end of the rope. So one of the most common accidents that's listed in accidents in North American mountaineering is somebody who is a very skilled rock climber, a very skilled mountaineer, but for whatever reason, they forgot to tie a knot on the end of the rope. Because a simple solution to not rappelling off is just to put a knot at the end and it won't go through that rappel device. So when it comes up to the end, instead of just like going out of your hand and then you fall to your death, it catches in the rappel device and you're hanging there and thinking, boy, I'm glad I read Accidents in North American Mountaineering. So all of you I know are going to be rushing out to buy this. Um, you can even go back years. I think they've been doing it for like 37 years now, and they put one out every year. So it's fascinating. What does that have to do with John? Nothing. I just like that book. Um, <laughs> Actually, uh, we are in John 15, and we're doing verses 12 through uh, 16.4. But as you look at 16.1, I want you to, if you've got your Bibles, turn there. John 16.1, Jesus is talking, and he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is Jesus, and he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. It's basically saying, I'm giving you an accident in North American mountaineering so that you won't fall. Just pay attention to all these things that I've said to you. And they are... 
See, if you're like me, sometimes Jesus said those things, and when he says that I've said these things, I'm wondering what things did he say? I know I just read them. You just had them read to you. You've had them all, but you're like, what things? What things? Because now suddenly they become important. What he's just said is, if you pay attention to these things, it will keep you from falling away. It's like that knot. Anybody want the knot at the end of their rope? then maybe we should stop and go, oh, the things that he said, I should, I should like note what those are. Or not. What we do see is that Jesus says this over and over. If you look at verse 11 in chapter 15, he says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Or verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, or 16.1, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. Or in 16.4, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. That there's something here that we're supposed to remember, something that we're supposed to take with us to keep us from falling away. So what thing? So rather than having you have to dig through it and have to wait and go, did you miss that one? Could you tell me what number three was? I'm going to give you all four right now. So get ready with your pens, pencils. Here you go. Number one, abide. We just spent last Sunday talking through the first half of John 15, and it's all about abiding in the vine. And I'm just going to give you a quick uh, reminder of this. In verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then a little further down, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So the first one is abide. That was last week, so we're not going to have to cover it, but we're going to go through and just go, if, if you missed that or you didn't, you're not remembering that, go back. Darren, it was a great sermon last week. Go listen to Darren's sermon. It's awesome on abiding. So first one's abide. The second one is love. We're about to hit it with love one another. The third one is go. And the last one is just what we've been talking about, remember. So it's abide, love, go, remember. Everybody got it? These are the things. So we're going to try it. It is... That's it. Let's close in prayer. Worship band, you guys are up. All right. It gets a little complicated, but that's the premise. When he says, remember these things, they're going to keep you from falling. This is what we're talking about. Abiding, all important. You can do nothing apart from him. This love, which we're about to hit, go. And it's go bear fruit and go bear witness. And then finally, what he's talking us to do is remember or repeat. It's kind of like that shampoo that it says, lather, rinse, repeat. If you did that, you'd be stuck in the shower forever. You know, just lather, rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, never mind. It's just me that wonders those things. All right, here we go. Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So this whole concept of love is, is 
an example that we've already talked about a couple of times in John because this isn't the first time this has been said, that we're to love one another. And in fact, if you remember, even just a few weeks ago, Tim had talked about that whole idea that this, we had the old commandment. The old commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. That that's the pattern that was Old Testament, that's the way it was, it's a good rule. But Jesus shows up and provides a better one, and he says, the new commandment that I give to you, and in this case he says, my commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. Not the way you love your neighbors, because some of you don't love your neighbors well. Not the way you love yourself, some of you don't even love yourself well. He sets the bar higher and he comes in and he says, what I want you to do is love one another the way I have loved you. And by raising the bar, he continues on it and he even says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. So here's the way you love yourself. Here's the way he says we should love by laying down your life for another the way he has done it. And that's the greatest love of all. Greater love is no one than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. This is a passage most of us know so it kind of sits there in some familiarity we kind of get comfortable with it but what I want you to do for a second is understand that when we start jumping into this there's a couple things going on love and duty is the first one there's a problem here a tension between love and duty is that what he says is my commandment is that you love one another Well, if it's a commandment, then it doesn't matter whether you feel love. You're commanded to do so. But then love is an emotional feeling that you love somebody and you want to feel that for somebody. So I want to love. But what, how do I do that if you're commanding to do, if I'm commanded to do it? And this is that situation where you sometimes see somebody whose marriage is dissolving. They get a divorce and one says to the other, oh, I never really loved you. I always just shake my head at that and go, that's just not true. There were days early on when you did. That's why you got married to begin with. Somewhere along the line, you might have fallen out of the feeling of love. But even in this case, what he's commanding you is to love. So if you say, I don't love you anymore, then I would say, Jesus would would say, start. In other words, if you say, I don't love you anymore, then start loving them. That's what he's asking us to do. He's saying, even if you don't feel the emotions, I command you to love one another. It's not all about, well, I just feel warm and fuzzy about others, those around me, one another. He's telling you, no, you need to go love. And the way you love is you're all in. You give everything you have. You spend your last bit of yourself on others. Love one another As I have loved you, greater love is no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And then he gives us the example of he himself laying down his life for us. This idea of spinning oneself is where you just put it all in. You don't hold back. I have a friend in Seattle that uh, one time we were doing some landscaping in our backyard and there were some bricks available from the mission. There was a brick building they had and they had a big earthquake. The brick building, the front of it all fell off and they had a big pile of bricks and nobody knew what to do with it. And it sat for years and years and finally somebody says, if anybody wants these, they can have them. And I decided this is perfect for the landscape. But I had a Toyota Camry. I still have a Toyota Camry and that's not necessarily known... At least not one of the first things it's known for is moving bricks. So Toyota Camrys are not good for that. So I went to a friend of mine and I said, hey Terry, you have a truck, don't you? Could I borrow your truck? 
Now, Terry, I don't know that he had just read this passage, but what he did next was he said, well, sure, what do you need it for? And I said, to move bricks. And he said, well, why don't I just uh, swing by? I live over where the bricks are. I will swing by, pick up a load of bricks, and then I'll bring them to your house. Well, what he did when he pulled up is, one, he didn't just loan me the truck. He invested even more by going and getting the bricks. He threw his two sons into the truck so that we had now four people to move bricks. And in the process, his truck comes up to my house like this because the front is all lifted off the ground. He could barely steer because the tires were off the ground and is loaded with bricks in the back. And then he and his sons had to go up our stairs. We didn't have an area where you could just do a wheelbarrow, but they loaded brick after brick after brick after brick that all had to be carried by hand just to be able to get it into our yard. He understood this concept that what it was was to spend oneself. To this day, Terry is still a really close friend, at least in case he listens to this message. The idea is, is that we have friends on all kinds of levels, and you have friends that you do some things with. Some of you, when Eugenie and I first came to this church, some of you found us on Facebook, and you decided you would become our friend, and you, asked a friend, you sent out a friend request. And it was spooky and kind of creepy. And, and I, no, I said yes to some of you, and some of you I still don't know. But the idea is, is that we have things that we call friends that are people that we may have seen once or maybe never seen at all. And then we have other people that are deeper friends. And it's that whole thing when you get ready to move, you ask for friends to help you move. And everybody's, oh yeah, I'm busy on Saturday. And oh no, I can't come. My, my dog is getting a, a root canal. There's something going on on Saturday. I'm sure of it. If not, I'll plan something. But when you get ready to move, it's strange how friends disappear. So then there comes that phrase that stops and says, you can know a good friend because a good friend helps you move. But a really good friend helps you move a dead body. (laughs) What Jesus is saying here is the very best friend is one who says, I'll be that body. I will be that body. That I will actually be the dead body. I'll be the one that actually lays down my life for you. That in the end, it's that idea when Jesus says, when you love one another, it looks like that. And that's crazy. Because we don't always love one another well. And he stops and says, you want to know what well looks like? And he sets an example, and that's number two. So as we look at it, abide, that was last week's, now it's love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes through the whole friendship thing. Now it may sound a little bit... Um, if you read this part where it says, you are my friends if you do what I command you, and you may be going through your mind right now, I don't always do what he commands me. Does that mean I'm not a friend of God's? And we sometimes beat ourselves up over that. And it's not wrong to look at that question and to stop and say, maybe I should be more obedient and do the things he commands. Yes, absolutely. But I want you to understand that in this process, the We don't necessarily become friends by doing something. The doing of it is not where the friendship comes from. Otherwise, just like paying your taxes because the government commands you to pay the taxes, you would be friends with the government. And how many of you are friends with the government? One. There we go. You probably work for the government. That's the way it goes. But the concept is is doing the thing itself isn't the thing. But rather, it's this idea of are, so that when we say it, it's not that you become friends by doing it, but that you do it because you 
our friends. So now the question is, if God has done things for you, if he asks you to do things for him, a friend would step in and say, yeah, I want to do those things. That's the idea when we look at this friendship. So ultimately, though, it comes down to this idea of spending oneself, of putting it all out there on the line. So we're going to go through, it works like a little bit of a dashboard that if you're driving down the road, you've got your speedometer, your gas um, gauge, different, your uh, thermometer tells you whether your car is getting hot. You have different ideas that tell you how you're doing. So we have four that we have to look at. And they are again? Good. And we just finished two of them. So now we're going to jump into go. And we're going to look at it in verse 16. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So this idea of going is actually tied to loving one another. They go together so that you will love one another. In other words, what it means is the idea of going is that sometimes God sends and you don't go. If you don't go, it's very difficult to love one another when he's asking you to go to another. So the ability to love one another means when the Lord whispers to you, go, then you should actually go. It's, actually, it's a kind of fun idea, huh? That if God said go, you'd, you'd go. It's wonderful. That is what we're talking about in this regard. It's the idea of bearing fruit. And the idea of bearing fruit is literally bringing others to Christ. That's the part of being in the vine. And by bearing fruit, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And you may think, well, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not really good at that kind of stuff. I want to read it again so you hear this first part. 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That his appointment, when we think about it, so many times we hear the word predestination and we think about our salvation. We think about how God has predestined us and so he has chosen us and that makes us feel warm and fuzzy and it should. It's a really good thing. But in this particular passage, this is a point where Jesus is using that same idea of having chosen you and appointed you to go. He actually selected you to be the ones to go. This is a really fun idea. That means when you sit there and go, well, I'm not good at this, he's going, oh yeah, you are. Because I've made you in my image. You can be a vessel of my love to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And I chose you and appointed you to do that very thing. He reaches out and says, tag, you're it. You're the ones I want to send out into this world. And we should feel that. Now, we're in good company when we feel like we're not that. You have to realize that that's what happened to Moses, right? When Moses is out there, after he's off in the wilderness, God comes up through the burning bush and says, Moses, my servant, I want to send you in back to, to Egypt. And Moses says, well, I'm not a good communicator. And it's like, did God not know that? We could go in and study that passage, but even with Peter, we look at Peter and God chose Peter and selected him after all the things we've seen from Peter. 
And so when we look at it, we say the same things that others have said before us. And yet he still taps taps us and says, I want you to go. Go so that you will love one another. Bear fruit. The problem is one of the reasons we don't like to go is because the going is challenging. It's a little bit risky. To just walk into work and start sharing the gospel. To go out on the streets and hand out tracts. Those kind of things can almost make your skin crawl sometimes. Because it just feels awkward and odd. And and the people aren't going to like it. And they're not going to like us. So I don't think that that's exactly what he's talking about. The idea of going and bearing fruit is is you come alongside of people and you walk with them. But even there we look at it and say, well, even when I walk with some people, once they find out I'm a Christian or once I get out in the world and they see that my values are different than theirs, there, there gets to be a little bit of animosity, a little bit of hate, a little bit of anger. And this we see in verse 18. And listen to this. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. I don't know about you, but that doesn't necessarily comfort me. So if the world hates you, yeah, it does. Well, no, it hated me first. It's like, okay, I still don't like it that they hate me. That doesn't make me feel good in that regard. So what he's trying to tell you, though, is he's trying to say, understand that it's not about you, that it's actually about him. And that this is a deeper problem that they have. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This answer right here is the one that's most important that we need to remember as we move amongst the world. They do not know him who sent me. When we get out and we see the crazy things that the world is doing, for us to simply take this phrase and remember it and understand, oh, the reason why they're doing this is because they do not know him. They don't even know God. And that should actually break our heart. That they are in a position where they don't even know Jesus Christ. They don't even know God the Father. They don't know him who sent Jesus. And so Jesus is saying this is why they do the things they do. When we step into the world and the world does hateful things. When we get against each other this way with the world. All we've got to do is remember they don't even know him. And it should actually cause us to lead with compassion. That we should care about them. That we should understand that because they don't know him, that explains why they're doing what they do. But it should also drive us to want to introduce him to them so that they could get to know him. The second thing is if you'll notice, he says, I have taken you out of the world. You are not of this world. But for him to have taken us out, that means we once were in this world, right? Anybody there? Anybody remember what you did in the world before you became a Christian? The things that we would continue to do if our flesh was just lived out and we had no fear of God, we would continue to just simply go out and be like the world. We were once there. I love what D.A. Carson says about this. He talks about us as if we were the rebels with a a whole rebellious group of people. This is the way the quote goes. He says, former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to the rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who still persist in the rebellion. 
I'll read it again because I think it's important that we understand this. We were once part of the rebellion. This loving God and his grace won us back so that we would, we would serve the rightful monarch, the rightful king. We've been pulled out of that. But what does that mean about the rebels that are still over there? They're not going to be excited by us. Former rebels who have by grace of the king been won back to loving allegiance to the rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who still persist in the rebellion. Why would the world like us? We're going to be seen as traitors and betrayers. We've left the values of the world to go become one with the king. And that makes sense as well. All right. As we go forward with this go, though, he sends us out to love one another and to do this. And we're like, well, yeah, it's tough out there in the world. But this so that you will love, I just want to bring back that idea that that what he did using that same word so, that greater love that he laid down his life for his friends, that same thing. For God so loved the, the church, the Christians. No, the world, right? It wasn't all of us all prettied up and polished and cleaned off. It was the world, the world that hated him, the world that was stuck in sin, the world that rebelled against him, the world that rejected. He moved towards that world. He so, God so loved the world that he sent his son. And what's our third one? To go. And he's sending us. Our assignment is to move towards the world as well, is to actually engage with the world where they're at in spite of their hatred, understanding their hatred because we were rebels once too, because we were once in that sin, because they do not know the father who sent the son. They don't know this love story. They don't get it. Now, the last thing on this one is just because the world hates you, the goal shouldn't be for you to hate him back. And we get into that trap pretty easily. We look at the world and think, well, the things of the world, I'm going to just despise and I'm going to hate the world, I'm going to hate them. And that's not the way it goes. If we look at it and go, well, if, I, if this is on the dashboard and I've got, all right, I'm supposed to abide, I'm supposed to love, and I'm supposed to go, but when I go, they're going to hate me. So if I know the world's hating me, I must be doing it right. <laughs> no, that's bad thinking because there's a lot of ways you can get the world to hate you. I remember once uh, General Motors, they started creating a bunch of golf carts and, and at Hume Lake, when I worked at the camp, the General Motors called us and said, hey, could you guys use like 250 golf carts? And we're like, well, no, not really, but sure, send them. We'll take them. And the whole reason they had them is because the state of California back in the 90s had a percentage goal for all car manufacturers to produce a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles. So they had to create a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles. Now, I think what the state of California had in mind, that cars that would drive on our freeways would put out no emissions. But what they said was, you had in your manufacturing, you had to manufacture a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles. So they produced a mass amount of golf carts. And they sent them out and said, you want a golf cart? You want a golf cart? We made a bunch of golf carts so that we could satisfy the law. That's crazy, right? That's why we're not looking at it of how do we get people to hate us. Just the opposite. We're trying to move towards them to love them so they would understand it. In the process, Jesus says, I need you to remember, when you go do this, they're going to hate you. 
it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. That's why I need you to remember these things so you will not fall away. Because in the middle of it, you're going to get discouraged. In the middle of it, you're going to feel like, gosh, this just doesn't seem like anybody wants to listen. It seems like everybody hates me. I'm not sure I want to do this thing. And we begin to fall away. And he's telling you, no, that's exactly what it's going to look like when you move towards them with this message of surrender. And that's the story that lays out that way. All right, now we slip into this uh, verse 22. And I don't know if you caught it, but as we were going through this um, in the reading right off the front, it's the verse that when you read, you sort of cringe like, did I understand that right? Did he say this right? Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Did he just say that they would be without sin if he didn't come? Then wouldn't it be better if Jesus never came and then they'd be all right? That's what it sounds like, right? This passage, as it lays out, anytime you have a problem in Scripture where you're wrestling with it, the best way to seek out interpretation on it is other Scripture. So we're about to do that, to look at other Scripture, to say, what does Scripture say about this? But just before we do, I want you to focus on one word, the excuse part. They all have no excuse for their sin. This is in verse 22. But now they have no excuse for their sin. That means previously they did have something. What did they have? In fact, the word here for excuses, uh, prophesis, which is a pretense, the King James Version translated as a cloak. They had a cloak for their sin. They had covered up their sin as if it wasn't there. The pretense was, we're righteous. Remember that about the Pharisees? Even Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That righteousness is a fake, it's, it's, it's a pretense. It says we're pretending to have our life all right. It's kind of what we do on a Sunday morning. We all show up as if everything's all good, and yet we know we're wrestling with all kinds of different issues in our life. Some of us are hurting. Some of us are lonely. Some of us have sin that's just ripping apart our life. Some of us are suffering from somebody else's sin. For us to put a cloak over that is a lie. And when Jesus shows up with a religious people who were pretending that they did not have it, that it was not there, then Jesus shows up and he takes away the excuse. Because he comes not only with this message that, no, you are in sin, but listen to how it's played out in Romans 3. In verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I need somebody here to stand up that's been in sin. There we go. We got one. Anybody else? There's another one. There's another one. There we go. There's five now. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. All right. Yeah. And quite frankly, if you're not standing, you're lying. So you're sinning right now by sitting down. You can't win. Go ahead and sit down. 
this is the pretense. This is what they were doing. They were trying to pretend they didn't have anything wrong with him. And he's saying, no, I am here to say you have no excuse for this. You desperately need me. And this is why he sends us. To abide so that we can bear fruit. To love one another so that we can bear fruit. To go and bear fruit and bear witness. We're going to peek at that really quick. And then finally, to remember that he said these things so that we won't fall away. We're going to jump down to, real quickly, um, in Romans. Let me jump back to John. In uh, John 15, 26, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Two things I want to say about the Helper. First, that's next week. Second is that you're in good company. The spirit of the living God is going to bear witness. And he says, and you also are going to be side by side with him. He's going to be side by side with us as we bear witness. And that whole concept there is just, it's a beautiful thing. Then finally, as we get to the end, we see that verse 16, 1 that we read at the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, and that's interesting, it's not like if someone kills you, it's, it's the when whoever kills you. He will think he's offering service to God and they will do these things because they have not known the Father. They do not know. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I want to finish with a story that is, uh, plays out all of these well, I've, I've shared parts of it before, but um, when I was in Seattle working with Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, there was an encampment about 500 homeless individuals all underneath I-5 right near downtown. And it was filled with crime and, and prostitution, human trafficking. It had waste, it had rats, it had needles, it was addiction. It was chop shops for stolen bicycles and other goods. It was just a really, really bad place where a lot of crime happened. People died, people assaulted, bad things happened there. And along the way, as I'm in Seattle and I'm working for this mission that reaches out to the homeless, the Lord whispers to me, Jeff, I want you to reach out to the homeless in the jungle and to go solve that problem. And I'm like, no, they're not going to like me down there. And he continued to whisper and to say, go, love them, move towards them. In the end, he, he, he had me go into the city. And so I went to the city and I said, here's our idea. We think we can solve this problem. And I'm scared to death about this. The city doesn't necessarily like that we're a Christian organization working in the city of Seattle. But they thought, well, it's worth a try. This is 37 years. They couldn't solve this problem. And so they came to us and said, would you at least try? We went and put our team together. We did a lot of prayer and we began to move into the world underneath I-5. And we began to love on them and we began to work with them and we began to get them reconnected with families and some into programming and some into housing and some just went away. But by the time it was the deadline to clean out the jungle of 500 individuals, the news media showed up, a ton of police presence showed up to sweep everybody out. There were all kinds of city vehicles. There was a huge just big presence of people, including protesters, who didn't think we should move everybody, who sh- anybody that was there. And they came to protest their right to live underneath the freeway. Those were my friends. They all were there. 
And this press conference comes out on that day. And on that day, we didn't have 500 under. We had already been helping people and we had two people left underneath the freeway. One of those two people was a Sudanese man. He had been, as many times as I went under, he was always there and always high. And this particular day, he was high on meth and he is cussing me out and he is threatening my life. Just as the cameras stop and say, the, the city came and said, Jeff, we want you to be our spokesperson for this whole effort. Would you come and stand in front of the cameras and say what we're doing? And so I go there and I have placards behind me, signs of protesters who are screaming at me that this is a bad, terrible thing. I have this guy who's threatening my life and he's cussing profanities at me and I-5 itself is right behind me going and all of this thing is going down and I wanted to be in any other place than right there. It seemed like everybody hated what we were doing except for the fact that a year and a half later not only did we empty out the jungle and there was nobody left in the jungle but that Sudanese gentleman His name is Athion. The reason why I know his name well now to this day is because I know the rest of his journey is we got him out of the jungle. We got him into a program. He gave his life to Christ. He spent a year in recovery getting cleaned up. And on the day that he graduated, it's the role of the president of the mission to come up and pin a mission pin on each of these individuals. And that night I could not pin the pin onto Athion because instead... Athion had a son that he hadn't seen in years and years. And his son walked into the room and his son says, can I please pen my father? I've got my dad back. Do you understand that what happened there is by abiding with God, he asks us to do things, he speaks to us if we're abiding with him, and then he calls us to love one another, to actually move to some who will hate us, to go and bear fruit and to bear witness about his love and how he so loved the world, he wants us to go so so love the world. He's calling us to do that same thing. And then he says, I want you to remember these things. Remember the things that I've said so that you do not fall away because it will be hard. He sends a helper. He gives an example. And so that you can remember, he wrote it down. It's here. He loves us, he's walking with us, he calls each of us. And this church, if it stands for anything, should stand for that love from Jesus Christ himself. Greater love than know them, one, no, nothing, I got, got it all messed up. You guys say it. <laughs> Greater love is no one than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Let me pray. Lord, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for what you've done for us and I just ask, Lord, that you would indeed stir within each of us the call to abide and to remain in you. And Lord, that for any of us who have issues with others, we would start spinning ourselves to to reconcile relationships, that we would go towards those that you are calling us to. And Lord, that we would remember that you went there first. We love you, Lord, and ask these things in your name. Amen.